0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Buskey and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. When the COVID pandemic struck last spring, thousands of cultural heritage sites, including the Washington Library in Mount Vernon, had to find ways to help team members do work from home. That wasn't always easy, especially as so much of our normal work requires a physical presence. One of our solutions at the library was to use this time to transcribe the voluminous correspondence of Harrison Dodge, Mount Vernon's superintendent in the late 19th century. And to do that, we turned to a digital platform called From the Page. From the Page is a crowdsourcing transcription tool that allows users to transcribe historical documents from the comfort of their own homes. Since last March, for example, our Dodge project collaborators have made nearly 9,000 page edits and contributed over 400 research notes. So on today's episode, you'll meet Sarah and Ben Brunfield, the creators of From the Page. Inspired by their involvement in Wikipedia's early days and hoping to find ways to transcribe treasured family heirlooms, The Brumfields set out to create a way for people, including those of you listening right now, to collaboratively transcribe the past. Check out our show notes or go to fromthepage.com to find out how you can join our crowdsourced transcription project. But before you do, let's transcribe from the page with Sarah and Ben Brumfield. I guess we should mention at the top of the podcast here, Ben and Sarah, that I don't think I've ever done this, but in the interest of full disclosure, Mount Vernon does have a subscription relationship with From the Page, but our relationship actually goes back quite a few years now to when I was at UVA. So why don't we start from a a kind of a 30,000 foot level, because we're here to talk about From the Page, uh, which is a research tool that you've designed to help crowdsource transcription of historic manuscripts. And that kind of gives away a little bit, but not the whole thing. But why don't we talk about, you know, more about what it is and, and what it's designed to do?
1: From the pages are collaborative transcription platform. People get to work together to transcribe, generally handwritten, occasionally typewritten, historical documents. When we say collaborate, that can mean a lot of different things to different people. We have research groups that work together to transcribe and work on, on documents and documentary editions. We have classrooms and teachers that work on, you know, using it for pedagogy and teaching. During COVID times, especially a lot of staff who work on transcribing material, it gives them something that they can do from home when they're not allowed to go into the office. But by far, our most popular use is the public, working with institutions to transcribe their historic documents.
2: And fundamentally, is, it's very simple. We don't use machine learning. We present image of a page to a user and a place for them to type what's on the page. Those two things together make magic but the magic is done by humans.
1: One of the things that's kind of different about how our platform works is that we are very inspired by Wikipedia and they have this ethos of collaborative knowledge creation that not one person by themselves is creating knowledge, but that one person creates a version of knowledge and then you kind of iterate and improve on that. So built into our platform is this idea that you can transcribe a page, but then someone can come behind you and read it and review it and make updates to it. Maybe they can read a word better than you can. Maybe they know the technical terminology. There's a lot of reasons why four or five, 10 people working on the same page is actually a produces a better transcript
2: than an individual. And it's fun to watch them as they work, discuss different terms that they see, you know, that they'll encounter very strange-looking things. Then someone will go off and do research and say, oh, okay, well, someone who wrote in on the owl, it turns out that the owl was an overnight sleeper train from uh, San Francisco to Los Angeles. And so that word really is owl, but it's a reference to uh, a train.
1: Yeah, so when we were developing from the page, we were very inspired by Wikipedia's model of collaborative knowledge creation and this idea that... One person can come in and do a first revision of an article in Wikipedia's case or a transcription in our case. And then other people can come behind them and review it. You know, maybe they can read the handwriting better. Or maybe they understand the technical vocabulary that's on the page. And so two, three, ten people can review the same page. They have a place that you can interact in notes on that page. And we think that produces a better transcription than just one person working by themselves. Yeah, in
0: isolation. All right. So a minute ago, you mentioned magic. So maybe we should get into the origin story or from the page. Why, you know, why from the page? What, when did you initially conceive of this tool and, and what were your aspirations for it?
2: This began as a personal project and the inspiration for it was a project that my father did in 1991. So when my great-great-grandmother died, she had kept a diary for the last 20 years of her lives and those were distributed to all of her grandchildren and they kind of went off to the four winds. And my father transcribed one of these and WordPerfect 5 1 and printed out a number of copies and passed them around to family members and neighbors in the small county in Virginia, Pennsylvania County. Probably a
1: lot of your listeners are from Virginia.
2: Yeah. So. <laughs> and um, it became this hit. Whenever we'd go back there, uh, complete strangers would come up and say, you know, I, I. You did a wonderful thing by typing this up. You know, you'd have 80-year-old women who would say that whenever they had a bad day, they would open up this diary and read entries of this other 80-year-old woman who would get up and, you know, feed the chickens and feed the hogs and milk the cow and then do some quilting and make dinner and all these amazing things. And they would get inspiration from that uh, in, in their days. We also had people coming up saying that they'd found uh, mistakes on family gravestones because they could see in the primary sources when someone died. And then if the gravestone says they died three days later, well, you know, that's not quite right. I wanted to do the same thing with a separate copy of the diary. A different year? Yeah, a different year. Mm -hmm. And I started to try to do that by myself. And I discovered that I didn't know the people who were involved. I didn't know anything about early 20th century tobacco agriculture. I was just in way over my head. And around that time, Sarah and I had gotten involved in the very, very early days of Wikipedia. And the wiki model of multiple people being able to collaborate on the same text was what I thought would be the solution because you have the ability for one person who's a good typist to type what they can and then someone else who perhaps is elderly, rural, doesn't have a good internet connection come in and say, oh, well, that's stripping tobacco. Here's what that means. I need of to
1: add here that we're both computer scientists by trade. We have, have degrees in computer science. So hammer, nail, right? right,
2: right. <laughs> it turns out that building a software system to, to do this, a, yes, a tool to let other people collaborate to do this <laughs> was a lot easier than doing the historical research myself. <laughs> <laughs> so what I really wanted was the ability for people to see the page as they were transcribing the text. Because editing systems already existed for collaboration, but, you know, once you sever the transcript from the digital image of the text, uh, you have no way to verify what's going on, right? You don't have the provenance. You don't have that, that transparency, yeah. the context, mm-hmm. any of that. So that's that's why we built from the page. Yeah.
0: Well, it's fascinating, right? Because it seems like at base level, it's, it's, it's a simple thing, right? That you would want to have that image directly next to the transcription field so that you could do that kind of verification. And you know, I used to work at the Washington paper project uh, back in my graduate school days. And, you know, if somebody had to check the copy text or something like that, they'd have to go to the files, which were in a vault or not, it's not a vault, but it's a A section of Alderman Library where they'd have to go and they'd have to get the Xerox copy of that copy text, bring it back to the desk and sort of look down and up, look down and up as they were checking what they had done, but they could not see it sort of side by side. So I imagine then it made it a whole lot easier to begin transcribing your, is your great, great grandmother?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, it was, and the collaboration worked in ways that I was not expecting. The people who had originally who, who I knew well, who I originally volunteered to work on this with me, uh, you know they they didn't end up doing more than a few pages, but they passed the document on to other people. So there was a distant relative who had retired early with uh, some health problems and was kind of stuck at home by herself, and she would plow through these pages. At one point, and she was able to find other copies of the diaries, other years, and get them scanned and send them to me to put online. She would scale back what she was doing. I noticed, you know, she went from, say, 10 pages a day to five pages a day to two pages a day because she was afraid that she would run out of material to work on and was waiting Mm -hmm. for me to post more. We also saw other people who did searches for their own name.
1: Right. So uh, there's a gentleman who lives in Virginia by the name of Nat Wooding. And he was doing a Google search for his name. And he ran across his name in a transcribed page of one of these diaries. And it turns out that his uncle, great uncle, I think it was his great uncle, was the diarist mailman. And so he shows up in the in the diaries every once in a while. I think uh, her husband or son often like helps him fix his car. Because like, I guess right, if you're a mailman, down. that's very important to have a working car. <laughs> he was a, you know, a mechanically minded person. So Nat found this. And he started working on, on the documents, and he became a very large yes. contributor. In fact, when those diaries were done, he he's like, oh, what else do you got? I really like doing this type of work. And that's what we've seen with a lot of volunteers, is that they really enjoy the process of, of immersing themselves in these historic right.
2: documents. He switched over to work on herpetology notebooks at the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology. And just plowed through those as well. And since then, he's become sort of a super transcriber volunteer for the Library of Virginia. Uh, So he does a lot of the Virginia Supreme Court case transcripts in the 19th century. It's neat to watch people develop over time. And
1: And to see people move kind of from project to project as one wraps up and to realize there's really an ecosystem of people who enjoy doing this type of
0: volunteer work. Well, as you said, you you know, you uh, have a computer science background. You were in sort of the early days of Wikipedia. We talk a little bit more about that because I'm I'm interested in that connection between Wikipedia and From The Page. Wikipedia is so ubiquitous these days that it's hard to conceive of a moment when it was very small and so how did you actually become involved in that project and then what lessons were you taking away and that you realized later laid the groundwork for something like From The Page?
1: I think kind of an example of how early we were in in Wikipedia's history is I created the first page for San Antonio, Texas. Austin had pages because there are lots of technical people in Austin, but San Antonio just, you know, a hundred miles down down the
2: road didn't. Yeah, I mean, it really was kind of a joke. Most articles were um, a paragraph (laughs) or less. Um, I did a lot of edits on the article on tobacco. And this was was something that I thought was interesting, um, which is that, It's really hard if you give people a blank slate and call them to do something and say, you know, please write this article, you know, for free, for fun. But if you present them with something that is half done or that is wrong, then they'll jump in. And so I looked at Wikipedia and I thought, this is a joke. This is ridiculous. And then I read an article on tobacco that described it as a vine. (laughs) And I said, well, it's not a vine. And immediately I had to go in and fix that right? This desire to fix things that are wrong really pulls people in. That's this very strong human thing. Whether that means we're all kind of bloody-minded nitpickers or whether we're, you know, concerned with truth and the right way to do things, I'm not sure.
1: There's also kind of the conversations that happen around Wikipedia articles. So I know for a while, Ben especially would just, he would watch the, the talk sections for, for ones he was very passionate about. so he could, Right. So we could make sure nobody was doing anything wrong, right? But we took that ethos and brought it into from the page, you know, the page image, and you have the transcription, but then underneath them you have a place for notes and comments. And we, we wanted to place that within the context of the page because you want to be able just to look up and say, right. Oh, right there is what they're talking about. Um, yeah, what is that word again? Or
2: and a lot of that inspiration came from Peeps Diary Online, which was our retro blog of Samuel Peeps Diary that would just post a uh, an entry per day. And there would be 30 or 40 comments by people doing all this additional research. And some of it was kind of speculative gossip about he's a sex life and what he's going to do next. And other people would go find contemporary entries by other diarists and post those. And that kind of collaboration was amazing. So trying to put all these things together and tie them to the page image so that you had transparency and provenance was really the goal.
1: So, what sort of things have we seen with that? Because we we do see that we watch the comments come in for different projects on the page. I think probably one of the most interesting ones, one of our very early projects, was um, lighthouse keepers' logs from the Kena Head lighthouses off the coast of Oregon.
0: Yeah, I remember that one.
1: Okay, yeah, this is we talked about it a lot in the early days because we didn't have lighthouses. Everyone loves lighthouses, and uh, so they had these keepers' logs that they had actually digitized from the National Archives and put them online and had people work on transcribing them. And there was this one entry.
2: Uh, the entry was, you know, all these entries are maybe two lines total. And this entry, you know, starts off with weather observations and then says that the lifeboat from the name of the ship came to shore at the lighthouse and the assistant lighthouse keeper carried the survivors to the doctor while the head lighthouse keeper helped bury the captain's body. The person who transcribed this one line, you know, two line entry went off and found contemporary newspaper report and found that there was this coal ship 200 miles off the Oregon coast that had exploded. And the survivors were stuck on a lifeboat for two weeks offshore before they finally washed up. And that's, that's an amazing discovery that People would not have found otherwise if some interested, motivated volunteer hadn't transcribed that and said, wait, 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 what is that about? Let's go look that up Mm -hmm. and find out more about this lifeboat.
0: Golly, that's nuts.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And something
1: like that pops up all the time, but you have to do a lot of work to to happen to stumble across one, right? Right.
2: And it's not always the, the things that we find aren't always, you know, people going off and doing research. Sometimes it's just analysis and emotional connection with the material. We saw that uh, in a comment yesterday. There's a project out of um,
1: University of the South Sewanee.
2: Sewanee, right? That's working with a set of um, con- with a convict leasing program in the 1870s, which is this absolutely horrible program in which uh, people who were convicted, primarily African American men, are leased to this terrible coal mine for and hard
1: labor. For right. hard
2: labor. Just someone yesterday noticed as they were transcribing, um, this person is 12 years old, right? There's a 12-year-old boy who is sentenced to three years hard labor whose, you know, his measurements, he's not even five feet tall, and he is stuck working in this coal mine. And, And just those stories and that connection that people who are transcribing this material have with it, even if there's no additional research, that's really powerful.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a terrific, I mean, it's a horrific example, but it's also a terrific example of how you can create those connections with the past in really deep and meaningful ways and take with it and run with it and take up all that kind of information that, you know, most people either may not have seen before or not have an opportunity to if this stuff had not been digitized, really.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: It's funny you talk about comments because I watch those come in on our project. And, and one of the things that we're working on is uh, we've had some volunteers transcribing the letter books of a man named Harrison Dodge, who was the superintendent of Mount Vernon, essentially the the president or the uh, the the groundskeeper, I guess. Ah, groundskeeper is not the right word superintendent of uh, Mount Vernon in the late 19th and early 20th century and we've got a couple of very passionate volunteers who really love dodge and it's fun to watch them talk to each other in the comments they're asking themselves can you please verify this word or the uh, the work that dodge is being asked to be done may indicate that there was some development on this part of the grounds and whatnot so it's been really fascinating to watch and you know and they're pointing out you know various things like books that dodge mentions because this is a period in which the Mount Vernon Ladies Association is very actively engaged in trying to recover, quote unquote, relics that have been distributed amongst the Washington family members in the, in the 19th and early 20th century and, and trying to figure out uh, where those pieces are. But then going back to sort of the, the example you talked about at Swanee, you know, it's also been very helpful in thinking about what happened to the enslaved people's quarters around the site in that period, the real connection between the architectural history of the landscape and how it was modified over time, which has been very useful in, in thinking about how this was a community of people, primarily enslaved people, and what their lives look like from a functional practical standpoint.
2: Yeah, we've seen some projects that go deep on that kind of material. There's one working with the Cameron Family Papers out of University of North Carolina, working with an early set of store ledgers. And the storekeeper on the plant, this is the plantation store, kept two sets of books, one for transactions with free customers and one for transactions with enslaved customers. Mm-hmm. And you can correlate the same entries in the same days and, and ask questions like, you know, if, if an enslaved person is sent in to buy something on behalf of a free customer, are they also conducting business on their own at the same time? And just fascinating,
0: fascinating stuff. Oh, that's really cool. I want to see that project.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, Anna Ogbe Davies, who's an anthropologist and archaeologist
2: at UNC. Yeah, it's also interesting because she's really focused on the specific material things that people are buying. Oh, that's cool.
1: They bought leather and something else, and then three days later, came back in and sold a pair of Mm -hmm. shoes to the store. All of a sudden, you can see industry and, and commerce going
0: on. Oh, yeah. And there's various ways you can push that even further, right? You can begin to map out where they're coming from. Maybe if some of that location data is in there, figuring out what the other plantations are coming from and look at that entire network then.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's exciting stuff. Mm
0: What was the state of crowdsourcing in general when you first spun up from the page? What did it what did it kind of look like? I you know I was aware of a few projects back in that period, mainly the uh, the Jeremy Bentham project out of uh, London. But that's the only sort of major one I can think of around that time period. What did it what did it look like at that point? So there wasn't
2: much. I mean, we got started in 2005 and um, have announced the project in 2008. And when we went public, there was a lot of interest, but not much institutional interest. There were very few people at libraries, archives, and museums who wanted to open up to the public the ability to uh, correct their material Mm -hmm. or to contribute, make those kinds of, of contributions. It really took a long time for the idea to be accepted.
1: I think the Smithsonian, so the Smithsonian Transcription Center was mm-hmm. the first really big, really successful, very public-facing transcription project.
2: And one of the problems was that I guess around 2006, the word crowdsourcing was coined, and it was coined in the context of systems like Mechanical Turk, very explicitly with the idea of outsourcing, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you you fire all your paid staff and you replace them with the crowd, which is not something that staff members and institutions want to hear. And it's also not something that would work, right? Because you can't run a successful crowdsourcing project by replacing staff members with volunteers. It's going to go nowhere. It just, it's, it's not really possible. And so that was an additional barrier, barrier to adoption. It doesn't make existing projects cheaper. It makes some impossible projects possible.
1: This is work that wasn't happening,
2: right? Yeah.
1: I mean, you have projects that do transcription for you know documentary editions and things like that, like the the Washington Papers that you referenced earlier. But most of the stuff was never going to get transcribed because it wasn't you know important.
2: Right. Most library special collections, most archivists, you know, they're dealing with boxes of unprocessed material, you know, and they're trying to go through what less process, more product. You know, that that's kind of the the goal right now, uh, which means you're not going to stop and sit down and type every single letter in every single folder in every single box when there's hundreds of boxes waiting to just have basic findings.
1: You you can kind of hear us starting to transition the language we're using to to talk about these projects from kind of research-focused projects and individual Mm -hmm. projects to institutional ones, right? And that's the trend that we've seen over the years that we've been working is that individuals are willing to take this risk and kind of do this work early on. And then institutions start embracing it.
0: So when we first started chatting a few years ago, and I was at UVA Law Library, and that was a special collection. So I'm, you know, I'm very aware of cataloging backlogs and things like that. And and it may be disappointing to some folks out there, but most of what archivists do is just trying to keep up with the bloody pile that they've got. I mean, it's just an unrelenting effort to catalog everything. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering then, as you started to see that institutional shift, was that one sort of a more general acceptance of crowdsourcing in general, but was it also a function of the fact that, hey, from an institutional standpoint, if we make the investment of getting stuff digitized, then at least we can not necessarily expedite cataloging, but at least offer content to our patrons in ways that we we just can't take on ourselves right now
2: it's hmm. a good question i'm not sure it's a matter of offering more content but offering different kinds of content right and, and a lot of that comes down to findability right with the the advent of things like google searches you have people who are searching for text and we have the ability to find material if it's been transcribed but these institutions that had done all this work uh, scanning from the late 80s on, those scanned documents were still just pixels and they couldn't be found and they couldn't be searched. So in a sense, there's a backlog of material that's already had the labor put into it to digitize it and scan it and even put it online that could be made more valuable this way and allow the institutions to almost do the scanning in parallel with a public project of doing the transcription to make findability easier. And this gets back to cataloging. You think about the example of the person who does a vanity search and finds a diarist mailman. What catalog, what finding aid is going to list a document and list everyone who's mentioned within it down to the diarist's mailman, right? That's, that's No one will do
1: that.
2: <laughs> and it wouldn't even be very useful in a list
0: yeah, no, that makes total sense uh, because you only have so much time and you've just sort of got to get the basic bare bones of what the collection is on down on paper and then move on.
1: But what we have seen is that as people start you know, spinning up some of these transcription projects and start building a volunteer corps and do this work, all of a sudden there's, there's this phrase that uh, Sonia Coleman is at the Library of Virginia, this phrase, mm-hmm. uh, feeding the beast. Right, because you have these voracious volunteers who want to do this work, and all of a sudden your digitization program becomes in support of your transcription <laughs> program as opposed to the other way around. Kind of fascinating, right? It's a it's it's great. It's a wonderful problem to have to have so many volunteers who want to work on your material that you're you're in a race
0: to to keep them happy. I love that phrase, feed the beast. Yeah, Sonya's great. I worked with her a little bit and that, that's a that's a very apt description. And they've got it down there at the Library of Virginia, a very robust program going on right now where they are just shoveling coal into that fire as fast as they can. Uh, right. Yeah.
2: They, they've been doing this for many, many years. Uh, we're only one of three transcription platforms that they use. I mean, they are really pushing it. Out. they Yes.
0: I ought to say publicly thank you to all those volunteers because I do use LVA stuff in my research from time to time and it is extremely helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah
1: yeah. Yeah, and you're not the only one right so we we see academic researchers looking at documents that have been transcribed by volunteers but the other real big place that this this is valuable is for family historians and we have a lot of projects that are not the documents are not Kind of as intrinsically interesting as letters or, or diaries, but they're more, you know, World War One service cards, where you've got a card mm-hmm. for every single service member in, in this case, let's see the state of Alabama, and then I think Indiana, Indiana did uh, as well, uh, one, right. one like this, and you know they collect five fields off of this card, and then they're able to re-index them in their digital asset management system so that. You can find, you know, your family member from a particular county and see where they enlisted and where they served and what their vital statistics were. And that's that's pretty powerful if you're a family
2: historian. I know we've seen that with vital records from the Maryland State Archives that's working on uh, marriage certificates. We've seen it with Indianapolis Public Schools where you have just a list of students' names and who their parents are and where they came from when they enrolled and where they're going when they de-enrolled. You know, that's a
0: genealogical goldmine. Not
1: very interesting to transcribe, but (laughs) but people do it because they're very motivated because of the genealogical value and they can see that value.
0: Well, and we're talking about these kinds of records, you know, those are sort of very structured records, right? They've got tables and fields and things like that. It makes me wonder then about from the page's early days, because you would have to build in that kind of functionality to facilitate that kind of work. So when you rolled out from the page at the beginning... What did it look like? Was it geared toward particular kinds of records or did you have sort of these things in mind already?
2: It was geared towards early 20th century printed diaries. So not all not of printed. our- uh, we... Not printed. diaries, but you know, the, the, you'd know, you go to a store and you'd buy a diary for 1916 and every page would have a date heading at the top of it and you had maybe 20 lines to write on. In the early days, it really was um, that the affordances of the tool were shaped by that experience.
1: Julia uh, mm-hmm. Brumfield's diaries. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so we,
2: we have had to do a lot of work to support things like correspondence because the way that you navigate 20, 365 page long documents is very different from the way that you'd navigate a uh, thousand two page documents. Very different experience. Um, and also, a lot of our assumptions about uh, whether, say, a page is a meaningful unit for analysis. Really, we had to rethink a lot of those when we started working with other kinds of material.
1: And then things like the World War One service cards were actually a collaboration between From the Page and the Council of State Archivists. The Alabama Department of Archives and History came to us and they're like, hey, you know, the World War One centennial is coming up. We have all these cards. We'd really like to do a project where we, we transcribe them and index them. And, you know, your tool is the closest we've found, but it really doesn't quite do what we need it to do. And so we were able to work with them, and they provided funding from a number of different state archives coming together, which I think is a really neat model for mm-hmm. collaboration to, to move a digital humanities tool forward. So we were able to do what we call field-based transcription. One document gives you one record with as many fields as you want to
2: configure. And it's the sort of thing that you'd want to pull out as a spreadsheet rather than as a, the kind of thing you'd print out and read at bed. Right. Textual documents.
0: Right. Well, yeah, then you take that and do all kinds of interesting data analysis with those records as well, right? Yes, Yes,
2: absolutely. We've also done a lot more work to support non-English documents and more difficult encoding. Pretty early on, there were some collaborators at Fordham that came to us with a couple of projects that were working with old French legal texts which uh, are of a lot of interest to people who don't necessarily know how to read Old French. Being able to pull this material into a system where you could transcribe it, but then also translate it, was important. We did some similar work with a project at Fordham, working with some Aztec codices with a Codex O'Ban, which is written entirely in Nahuatl, which is great, but needs to be translated for access to most people
0: who don't speak Nahuatl. Are the people doing the translation then, or have you found a way to do a programmatic translation? No, no. We, we have humans
2: doing translation. <laughs> yeah. we, again, think <laughs> this is really important. Computers should help us out, but they shouldn't replace us. Maybe I'm biased on the human.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like uh, your Spanish language exam in college. If you get caught using Google Translate, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: When I was in college, they didn't have Technical Google Translate. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it sounds like, though, that this has been a kind of a model for you where someone approaches you with a problem that from the page can't immediately solve, but then they're willing to work with you to make improvements to the tools so that they can facilitate that work.
1: Yes, this is is sort of we fell into that model early because, you know, we were we were running from the page, but a lot of our our we started building it, we're still working day jobs, and then we've slowly transitioned over time to doing consulting work in the same kind of digital humanities area, which made it easy for us to say, oh, yeah, you want to build something on our platform? Yes, we can do that. And then in the last you know year or so, we've gotten to the point where we're doing hardly any consulting work, and we're just focusing on from the page. But those collaborations with other institutions to help fund new features is really awesome because... We get to build it. We like that, right? Mm-hmm. And we, can, we have the, you know, the cache that lets us do that instead of building someone else's software. But everything that we build gets rolled into from the page, and then it's both available on fromthepage.com, our software as a service, but everything we build is also available as an open source software tool. We do a lot of um, collaboration with University of Texas at Austin. We're in Austin. We happen to know them personally. And so they recently received an NEH grant to do a number of enhancements. We did a a translation of our interface. So not the work, the documents that we're working on, but the the software into Spanish and Portuguese, um, because they have a lot of colonial documents. They do a lot of collaboration um, with folks in Mexico. They've got it's the Puebla story. There's...
2: Yeah, the memorial the archives of, uh, of Puebla in Cholula are, are material that's half Nahuatl, half Spanish. And you know the interface needs to not be in English.
1: So that's been a great collaboration. It's also going to, in this coming year, give us some additional export formats like PDFs or Word, or we're kind of still <laughs> talking through what those are. But sustaining software is really hard. Like Software breaks... And if you don't have people who can fix it, it's, it's challenging. And so trying very hard to be a platform that, you know, you can contribute to helping keep going means that From the Page can keep going and doesn't kind of degrade like many, many
2: projects happen to. It also provides a lot of efficiency for projects in the humanities that typically don't have big budgets, right? So if you need, if you're the British library who needs an Arabic transcription platform, well, you can build an Arabic transcription platform from scratch, and that
1: will take you a year. Yeah, it'll take
2: you a year or more, and it will be somewhere in the six digits. Or in the case of the British Library, they were able to throw three digits at us, and we were able to figure out what was needed to make our existing platform
0: support Arabic.
1: Yeah. Two months later, they had something that worked, and yeah. that's,
2: that's pretty awesome.
0: And everybody wins in the end, too. As you said, right? It gets integrated into the front of a page, but then it's also open source.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of the wonderful things from our perspective of working in this world rather than working in industry where your customers might be competing with each other. And if they fund one project, the contract may say that no one else gets to use that. You know, only they get to use that. But that's not what cultural heritage and, and libraries, archives and museums are like. And they tend to be really excited to be able to help other people out.
0: Why don't we talk a little bit about how a user actually uses from the page as best we can, because nobody can see us uh, right now, uh, because we're not uh, we're not a video podcast. It does make you wonder what the point of a video podcast is, if it's a podcast. But that's a topic for another discussion. (laughs) How does someone interact with it? What do you what do you do?
1: So if you're a transcriber. Um, and you go to fromthepage.com. Most of that page is, is aimed at people who might want to run projects. But at the very top, there's a, a place to sign in. And you can sign up as a transcriber.
2: It even says sign up to transcribe.
1: Sign up to transcribe. <laughs> and there's a link up there as well that says find a project. And when you click on the find a project page, all of the projects on from the page that are public, that have enough un- untranscribed material that they need still need new volunteers, and that have put enough kind of effort into describing. So we like to have a picture and a short description um, and that those three things together we'll we'll put them on our Find a Project page. And a volunteer can scroll through that looking for things they might be interested in. They can also use like a search bar. So if you're interested in colonial documents, you could search for colonial and what would kind of pop up would be Uh, So the Harvard University uh, Colonial North America project, which has everything Mm -hmm. from the colonial era, all of their libraries. So their theology library, their science library, the Radcliffe or Schlesinger library for, you know, their women's stuff. Right. There's just I think there's like 15 different libraries at Harvard that all have colonial era material. And it's all part of this project.
2: But you'll also get the North Carolina Carolina State State Archives Archives Colonial Court Records.
1: And then uh, if you click into one of those projects, there's a button that's start transcribing and it will take you to a document that hasn't been worked on yet. If there are any mm-hmm. on the first page of that, or if there's no documents that haven't been worked on recently, it'll take you to uh, the next page of the least recently worked on document. So that we try to keep people from stepping on each other, but because we have this very collaborative model, it is possible. You get a warning if you try to transcribe a page somebody else is working on.
0: Can you give us a sense of what steps the owner has to go through to get a project spun up? And then maybe we can talk about what's the end game once they're satisfied that their documents have been transcribed adequately, what do they do with it then?
2: We try to make the process of getting material onto the crowdsourcing platform and getting the crowd contributions, getting the transcripts back out as simple as possible, which means we have a lot of different on-ramps and I'm not going to go through all of them, but most simply. Someone would upload a zip file full of folders of images. They could also upload a PDF. They
1: use a standard called IIIF. You just copy and paste a URL in. There's lots of different ways, right? (laughs) Right. And
2: you pull that material in to a new project that you would create. You would configure the project a little bit with a title and a description and the the great user-friendly things that Sarah mentioned. You'd also define transcription conventions. And this is really important because different projects use different conventions. It's really important that transcriptions are consistent within a project and that they match those descriptions, or the kind of you know fundamental rule of scholarly editing is define your rules and then follow them. And those transcription conventions get displayed to, to users transcribing as they go. Then once material is transcribed, they can export and download as zip files and PDFs and Sorry, not PDFs, zip files, (laughs) HTML, uh,
1: TEI, all kinds of different
0: options. (laughs) Yeah, do you ever hear of anybody going rogue in terms of their volunteers? They're just like, you know what, I'm going to transcribe according to my own
2: conventions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We do, actually, and that has happened on a project that I ran, uh, working with some material from the 1820s in which I had not updated my transcription conventions. They still use the old uh, 1918 Conventions I had come up with for the first project. And I had a volunteer who started plowing through those. She was a descendant of the the diarist in this case. And, uh, she at one point said, you know, you say to modernize capitalization, but I've done some research and that's not the right thing to do. Here's what I'm going to do. (laughs) And that was a case in which, you know, she was right. So we revised the transcription conventions to reflect proper practice and uh, went back and did a little bit of revision and, and,
1: and the system allows for both of those things. You can right. revise your transcription conventions and you can revise your transcriptions,
2: right? More common, you have volunteers who don't necessarily go rogue, but they encounter gaps in the instructions. They come in and they say, oh, well, you know, this, this bit of text is, is crossed out. What do I do about it? You're not giving me any guidance. So I'm going to try doing this. I'm going to try using HTML tags or I'll just put a little parenthetical note that says line 43 crossed out or something.
0: Yeah. And I've had that as well. Whereas, you know, most of the stuff that we're working on is our letters correspondence, but occasionally a table will pop up. And uh, I think we, when we initially started the project, somebody was like, what do we do with these? And I'm like, we're just going to put those aside for now. And we're going to figure that out later because <laughs> that's yes. tabular yes. data. I mean, you could do H yeah, you, you can do HTML. And, if, and I, I think this gentleman knew how to do it. I was like, you know how to do that, man you go for it um, but otherwise just just skip that part we'll go from there
1: we also support markdown for tables but it's a beast right yes. not, yeah. not doing it in any of these
2: formats so is not Yeah.
0: yeah well what's nice though is right is you've got you've got a level right where everybody can do it and then if people want to they can take advantage of What you have to offer to do something really complicated if they want
2: that's actually one of our goals and this is so there's a a concept in web development called progressive enhancement you go to a website and uh, you're on a text only browser for example you should be able to see something that makes sense to you maybe you don't get the pretty picture right if you go to a website and you have a browser that has you know supports pictures but doesn't support javascript you should still be able to read the news article or something, right? And that all of these additional features should be enhancements. And we like to think that that might be possible with transcription and text encoding. That if you approach a project and all you're comfortable with is typing in plain text, So long as someone is willing to go behind you and add the additional markup that might be desired by the project, that's okay. You can make a really valuable contribution that way. If what you want to do is markup the entities that are mentioned within a project, all the names of people, then great, do that too. But we shouldn't require people to master XML encoding and all these other things in order to contribute.
0: Exactly. Well, as you both know, we're still dealing with the COVID pandemic and thinking about, what contributions people have made, what opportunities they've had to develop their own skill sets using from the page. And uh, thinking about institutions like Mount Vernon, because one of the reasons we signed up was because we needed to create a digital project that would help support our staff and keep them engaged uh, when we were still thinking that it would be a two-week shutdown. What kind of use have you seen since COVID reared its ugly head last year?
1: We ran these numbers just the other day, and like the number of visitors to our site uh, year over
2: year is tripled. Cool. I think, yeah, or tripled or quadrupled. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> we
1: have spent a lot of time working on what we what software engineers call performance problems, which you will never see other than when it doesn't work, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you know, keeping the site up and running when you when you start growing that that fast is
2: has its own set of challenges. Right. I mean, when you go from maybe three hundred people working on the site per day to a thousand people working on the site per day, that requires some stretching. We also have seen a usage pattern that we never really saw before, which is institutions using the tool for remote work, right? If you are a university library and you've got students on a work study scholarship, whose job is to come into the library and take special material, special collections at the library and scan them on scanners at the library, and suddenly those students are stuck at home and need to do remote work
1: in order to keep their scholarships.
2: How is, how is that going to happen? Um, if you have hourly employees that are working at a state archives, you know, how are they going to work from home when there is nothing that has ever been part of the workflow in those state systems? So, um, we've really had to push hard to enable a lot more private projects or restricted projects in which say only staff members or only students are able to contribute. We've also done a lot more with workflow management, trying to make sure that the students make one pass, then we need to be able to lock that down so that the staff members can take a pass to review what they've done. And we've done a lot with um, timesheet recording. You know, we're getting, Emails we never would have gotten before from people who are volunteers who need a record of their hours for their probation, probation officer, officers. for example. Yeah. Right, they've got court-appointed community service that they can't do in person anymore, uh, and so enabling e-volunteering is really important.
0: That's amazing. I mean, I I had a little bit of a sense, right, because our volunteers have to record hours. I think it. Gets, I'm not sure why exactly. I think it just gets factored into. Whatever reports that the higher ups produce for the board and whatnot, I'm not even sure if there's a any kind of tax implication or whatnot. But it never occurred to me, right, that there there could be instances which people are mandated by law that they have to do something, you know, community services. You just pointed out who then can use something like this to satisfy those requirements and not get penalized for it.
2: Um, It's also neat, though, to see on a little happier note projects happening that. I think have the potential to transform the in-person experience once the in-person experience is open again. Uh, There's a project that's just starting at the Boston Public Library that is engaging their volunteer docents, their tour guides of the, the big historic building on Copley Square who have all been stuck at home and not been able to do any, you know, guide any tours to transcribe the trustees minutes when that building was being planned from 1885 up to around 1900. Right. So you've got these volunteers who are intimately familiar with the physical space and they are looking at the architectural discussions and they're transcribing those. And, you know, these are the people who understand that building and understand that really well. And they're going to be going through as they transcribe and finding all these what-ifs of things that were discussed, draw all the discussions and backstories behind this space.
1: Where material came from, how much did it cost. You right.
2: Know. All this stuff, right? And not only are they the perfect people to be transcribed this material, but when all this is over and we're back to normal and those volunteer docents start giving tours again, just imagine that wealth of knowledge that they will have acquired and what they'll bring to that tour experience
0: oh that's really fascinating yeah it'll make a much richer tour experience for the people who come and see those sites yeah you know and it's funny too because a lot of times individuals who are in those positions or similar positions right they don't necessarily have the time to do the kind of research that they probably would like to, you know, unless they're doing it on their own time, but, but then to have the opportunity to sit down and, and actually stare at these things on a, a consistent basis over a longer period of time it's probably got to change the way that they do things, I would imagine.
2: You know, It's also possible that it changes the conversation with the institution, right? If you have a group of people who are giving tours uh, and one of them goes off and does all this extra research, and there's, there may not necessarily be a channel for feedback. You know, to, to pass that up or to pass that to the rest of the tour group. But if everybody, if all the guides are doing this together, then there's this really focused conversation happening uh, that is pretty exciting.
0: Yeah. It gets back to that idea of the collaborative model that you've been talking about over the course of our chat. Where do you see from the page going next? What's on the horizon? You've talked about a couple of things you're working on at the moment, but what's down the road and what what do you hope to achieve in say, I don't know, in the next five years?
1: So the next year is interesting because we have actually a ton of this collaborative feature work that we referred to earlier. So the Council of State Archivists uh, is funding uh, what we call ledger-style transcription, so picture documents that look a lot like spreadsheets, and we have not been able to support those because they're they're hard to transcribe. They're hard to keep help help your transcribers keep track of where they are. You got many rows that you have to set up. So there's you know it's challenging. So we're working on building that right now. They've also got quality control work that we're we're going to be doing for that. And then to allude to something you mentioned earlier about a lot of special collections work just being trying to keep up with describing the flood of stuff that that you have or that's coming in. Um, one of the features that uh, Alabama in particular wanted was a, what we call metadata description. So instead of, or in addition to transcribing a document, also describe the document, give us a paragraph about what it is. So that's going to be an interesting experiment to see
2: how that works. Right. It's especially relevant for correspondence collections where, you know, if you've got someone who's transcribed a document asking them, who's the sender? Who's the recipient? What are the dates here? It's a very easy thing for them to answer because they've just been in that document. Uh, we think probably this year the most transformative thing will be the letter style, uh, transcription because that is something that so many records of importance are in. Like we're, we're working with, say, the voter registration rolls from the 1867, uh, election in Alabama, which is the first free election in which you have, uh, freed African American males voting. That's really, really powerful. And so many other records in government archives, but also in natural sciences, social sciences come in that tabular format. And there's really not a good option out there for people to transcribe that.
0: Yeah, that's like the Holy Grail. Ledgers are, (laughs) ledgers are a pickle.
1: yes, Yes. They are hard. So I think when we look five years, it gets, it gets harder to figure out. Like I have a lot of possibilities in my head. And a lot of it is is kind of our first thing is to grow the platform and uh, to make it even more stable and to make sure it can handle all of these different types of manuscripts, which is a lot of what will be happening in the next kind of year, year and a half. But once you get beyond there, we have there's interesting questions like, okay, well, what about audio? Do you want to do audio? Would you do it from the page? Would you do it in a different system? I have some ideas. We'll have to see where where we are when we get there photograph identification and description is a different beast because you know you might have a set of a hundred photographs that you ask people to look at and really what you want is for them to just slide through them on an iPad or something and when they see one that they recognize then to go deep and give you a good description but you know maybe that's only three out of a hundred that's assuming they know the area and the people and whatever you're trying to identify so that's a different type of crowdsourcing that maybe we get to I'd like to get to <laughs>
2: but there's also More prosaic things like watching users workflow and trying to figure out what is frustrating to them. What makes them productive? What makes the task easier, right? Looking at the people who sign up and maybe they never transcribe a page and ask, well, why? Right. What's going on there? And that's something that is going to be constant over the next five years is just trying to make sure that people are able to do the best work they can and that the tool helps them rather than getting in the way.
0: Well, Let's check back in in five years and see where you are. <laughs>
2: that sounds
0: great. That sounds great. <laughs> well, Sarah, Ben, thank you very much. It, it's funny. I think, as I said to you in an email, and we've known each other for a while, but we've never actually talked about any of this. And so I was very delighted that you said you would come on because I was, I was very curious. And now I feel like I'm fully informed. Great. <laughs> we well, take care. We'll see you in five years and uh, stay safe in Texas. It's mm-hmm. been a pleasure. Thank you so much yes. for having us on. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is "Witches Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your favorite podcasts. To find out more, please check us out at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.